we were up at dawn and outside working, picking whatever we were growing at the time. We had to pick everything and do it right. Come home from school, you went out in the field and you worked because it was necessary. Today's show celebrates Women's History Month and comes to us from Rework, the podcast from the UCLA Labor Center that for the last decade has elevated stories of work to humanize and break down economic and racial justice issues. Each episode centers on the life story of a worker or activist with a focus on people of the global majority, through curated interviews punctuated with host reflections, music, and archival tape that draw listeners to a particular time, place, and feeling. It's produced by Vina Hampapur and Sabah Wahid. Their latest episode is The Tractor Princess, and it draws on excerpts from an oral history interview with Antoinette Yvonne Delcampo-Lechtenberg, which is part of a community archive and research initiative called Watsonville is in the Heart, which highlights the stories of Filipino families from the greater Pajaro Valley region in California. And on Labor History in Two. The year was 1933. This was the day that Franklin Roosevelt named Frances Perkins Secretary of Labor. Secretary Perkins was the first woman to hold a cabinet position in the United States government. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is Labor History Today. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1933. This was the day that Franklin Roosevelt named Frances Perkins Secretary of Labor. Secretary Perkins was the first woman to hold a cabinet position in the United States government. Perkins brought to her position years of experience advocating for working people. Born in Boston, Perkins attended Mount Holyoke College. She moved to Illinois to become a school teacher. She began spending time at the renowned Hull House Settlement House. At Hull House, Perkins encountered some of the leading fighters for women's rights and workers' safety, while learning from many of the leading labor reformers of her day. From Illinois, Perkins returned east to study economics and sociology, earning her master's degree from Columbia University in New York City. Soon, Perkins became the head of the National Consumers League. While in New York, Perkins witnessed firsthand the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire tragedy. She watched as 146 young girls and women jumped to their deaths to escape the deadly flames because the doors of the factory were chained shut. The experience profoundly affected Perkins. She would later say the New Deal began on March 25, 1911, the day the Triangle factory burned. She spent the rest of her career working to ensure the conditions that led to the Triangle Fire would not be repeated. Perkins played a key role in crafting many parts of Roosevelt's New Deal legislation, including the passage of the Social Security Act. She also worked to pass the National Labor Relations Act, which allowed millions of workers to earn collective bargaining rights for the first time. During her 12 years as Labor Secretary, Perkins forged new ground for the role of women in government as a staunch ally for working people. Labor History in Two, brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on the Twitters at Labor History in Two. I can smell the dirt. I like to feel the dirt, smell the dirt. I can tell if dirt is good to plant in. I can tell what nutrients it needs. From the UCLA Labor Center, this is Rework, 
I'm Seba Wahid. And I'm Vina Hampapur. Today's episode might sound a little different. We pull on excerpts from an oral history interview with Antoinette Yvonne de Campo Lechtenberg. It's a part of a community archive and research initiative called Watsonville is in the Heart, which highlights the stories of Filipino families from the greater Pajaro Valley region in California. Antoinette paints a picture for us of growing up in a rural farming community in the 1960s and 70s. Watsonville is in the Heart originated with community organizer and Tobera Project founder Roy Recio. And the team now included UC Santa Cruz faculty and students, including Christina Plank. Christina co-directs the project's digital archive and is curating an exhibit at the Santa Cruz Museum of Art and History that will open in 2024. Christina joins Seba and I today to shed some light on the broader context of Antoinette's story. We asked Christina, why Watsonville? Why the Pajaro Valley? Watsonville is located about an hour and a half south of San Francisco, near Monterey County. It's a primarily farming community that really erupted during the 1920s and 1930s when agriculture started to flourish in the area. The Filipino community also came in the 1920s to work as primarily agricultural workers for very cheap. Manong is an Ilocano and Tagalog word that means older brother. But academics and community organizers have adopted that term to refer to the first generation of Filipino migrants that came to the United States in the 1920s and 1930s. A lot of them were young men who were eager to work and had these ideas of what America was like from their U.S. colonizers. And when they came here, they realized that the visions of the U.S. were very different than their experiences. They came into the United States at a time where Jim Crow laws were rampant. There was extreme poverty because of the Dust Bowl. And so they were competing against all of these factors just as the U.S. marked the Philippines as one of its colonies. Antoinette's father, Skippy, was a part of the Manang generation. It's kind of hard to be first generation. Philippines is a long ways away, right? A lot of people don't understand the hardships that they did go through. I mean, they were paid pennies, pennies to work and lived in terrible living situations. My father left the Philippines, was 17. As he says, I packed my two pairs of pants, my two shirts, and my money, and he stowed away on the boat. And he came to San Francisco. So Filipino migrants that came in the 1920s and 1930s worked up and down the Pacific seaboard in California, Oregon, and Seattle following the seasonal crops. During the time of Japanese incarceration during World War II, many other Asian ethnic groups were perceived to be also Japanese and were also wrongfully incarcerated. Antoinette believes that somebody thought that her father Skippy was Japanese and so he was sent into the incarceration camp. 
My father didn't have his papers and he was in an internment camp and he lost everything at that time. He didn't really talk a lot about that time. So I have a lot of holes about where he went, but in the late part of his life, he told us stories about being there and he was treated a little bit better because whoever was in charge realized he really wasn't Japanese. After Skippy got out, he eventually ended up in the Pajaro Valley. A really important thing that my father did for other Filipinos was to help them get their visas. He came here with no papers. And where did that land him? In an internment camp. So he helped people get their paperwork straight. Skippy was a very industrious man. In addition to being a foreman in various ranches, including the Cressetti Ranch, he also owned his own land and farm. Before World War II, Filipinos were largely barred from owning land under alien land laws in California. And then after the war, Filipinos were legally able to own land, but it was still pretty rare due to discriminatory practices. And Antoinette's father found a way through his sister-in-law, May. My Aunt May Wasser was a white woman that could own property. So that partnership with her owning the major part of the property and my father's name was on the deed of the Rosser Lasso Diocampo Ranch. In various times, Filipino, Mexican, and Japanese laborers decided to band together and form unions and to strike against farmers. And so when the striking happened, there was moments of unrest. And as a foreman and labor contractor, Skippy had a really difficult relationship to this because not only did he sympathize with the other Filipino laborers that he was working with, but as somebody who was in charge of labor and who, you know, was really close with white farm owners, he felt indebted to those communities. I remember the cars of people, the flags, and curtains drawn in the house. All the shades were pulled down. We had to stay away from the windows. The shades were pulled down. My dad carried his big bolo knife in the truck. I mean, they were striking. They came to the farms. For us, it was very scary. I know my father was like in between. You have your employer and you have your people, and then you know what's right, but... It was a hard place to be. I know in the end, my father's heart was with his people. He did go back to the Philippines, too. He would be storing up coffee and whatever foods to take back or necessities in the Philippines because our family there were very poor. And and he also would arrange marriages. (laughs) He'd make that trip to the Philippines every couple of years, take some rancher with him, find a wife. Antoinette's mom was from Texas, but her mother's family lost their ranch during the Depression, and so they had to move a lot. They went from Michigan to Washington to California. My mother was working for my uncle in the green bean fields. That's where my father met my mother, She was a lot younger than my father. My father was, I think he was like 48 when I was born. 
Antoinette was born in Watsonville in 1960, and a couple years later, her parents bought a property in Aromas, which is about four miles away. When I grew up in Aromas, there was a population of 408 people. There were two stores, a gas station. It was a very small town, not very diverse, but it was community. When they were growing up, she referred to herself as the tractor princess because she grew up on the tractor. She learned how to ride it. And that was a point of pride for her because she realized that not a lot of girls her age were given that opportunity. Living a farm life, it's like you went to bed early, got up early, went to school, and then when we'd come back home, you know, you had to make sure your chores were done. And then, you know, you went outside to play because we were so rural, you know, I mean, we could be at the school or at the river or play on the farm, like try to drive the tractor. My dad would whistle and then you'd come home. We used to go out to Bellotto Park. It would be a great time because my dad would take a blanket and he would lay under the trees and we'd take a picnic lunch. When you actually saw your parents relax, you knew that it was a good time. I mean, my dad was laying on the grass and enjoying just laying on the grass, watching us play in the pool. I remember vacations being planned, but being canceled because he had to work. So that was his best way to uh, have us have a good time as a family. We had a lot of interaction with my uncles. My dad would take me and my sister and it would be like a barbecue or he'd be checking the ranches or he'd take us to my Uncle Johnny's house where it was very different because that was a white part of our family. Um, there wasn't rice on the table. I had to learn different things. Like I never had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich until my Aunt Betty offered it to me. And I was like, which would you prefer? And I didn't know the word prefer. You didn't get a choice. What was on the table, you got it home. What would you prefer? I don't know. And then the Mexican side of my family was very different. My grandmother had a house in Watsonville and my cousins, they would be there a lot. And uh, there were a lot of differences. In town, they went to the movies. You know, they had different activities than we had. Well, we were farmers, so it cycled around the farm in work. My father worked a lot more than he probably ever should, and he probably was never paid as much as he should have been paid. Skippy passed his work ethic on to his children. Antoinette and her sister were involved in farm work and helped out wherever it was needed. The reason why they were so involved in the farms is because they didn't have an older brother. You know, a lot of, like, the gendered labor fell upon them learning to drive tractors or growing up in folding boxes, I think shows that they were trying to navigate between this kind of class and gendered boundaries within the Pajara Valley. We were up at dawn and outside working, picking whatever we were growing at the time. We had to pick everything and do it right come home from school, you went out in the field and you worked because it was necessary. And we worked every summer, you know, I mean, you pick until lunchtime, you stop, take a break, 
And if you got to do the lucky one, go in and make that pot of rice at night before everybody else came in, then you got to quit a little bit earlier. So my sister and I learned how to cook rice by the time we were like seven, eight, <laughs> no rice cooker, a pot. When we got older and we got our work permits, we went to other farms. It was agriculture around us. So there were like blackberry fields and we would work at the orchards, picking up windfall, apples. It was work. When you turned 18, you got an alarm clock so you could get to your job on time. <laughs> I think when you were 13, you got a watch and you never were late. You weren't late. Our parents really instilled in us from the time my sister and I were young to save our money. We had to buy our own school clothes, but it wasn't always just hard work because, you know, we had our uncles and we had the aunties that came out to work and they were always fun and there was always laughter and a barbecue in the field or, you know, hard work, but a lot of good heart. In high school, Antoinette's life took an unexpected turn. Life was a little bit disjointed at that time. I ended up being a teenage mom. There was a lot of shame in our family. So I went to go live with the family in Salinas. And when I had my son, my father came to the hospital and moved me home. He said, no, you're my daughter. You're coming home. And the relationship with my son and my father was so tight. He'd come and get him and sit him on the table and have breakfast with him when he was just an infant. My father basically kind of raised him there so much alike. Raising him was the easy part. Going to school and going to work was the hard part. At the time, I was a teenage mom. I had been accepted to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. My counselor said, you can't do that. And I had to go to work, but I always went back to school. And then, you know, there were things that would come up and it was like, you know what, if you don't have somebody advocating for you, you know, you are lost. You are lost. And I was lost a lot of years. Then it just clicked on me that, you know what, if you've been through it, then you should share it to make it easier for the next person. My father was one of the most generous men I ever knew, that you always help to make life better. I would say for the descendants of the Manung generation, 50% decided to stay in the Pajaro Valley. For Antoinette, she wanted to stay to give back to the community by going into education. Antoinette became a college administrator using her own experience to help other single moms. Eventually, Antoinette's father got sick. Antoinette believes that the physical labor that he endured throughout his life is what ended up causing a lot of these physical ailments later on. As an elderly man, that his exposure to pesticides and other chemicals during the growing process perhaps might have caused his physical decay. The work, the type of labor, the fact that he was working multiple jobs at the same time caught up with him. When my father passed away, I moved out there to help my mom maintain the ranch, but then I got sick and I couldn't help maintain the ranch. 
my mother sold the property to my brother and my sister. I made peace with it because I live a mile away from all my memories. I drive through these fields I've been through all my life. I drive through and look at the black dirt. I remember the pristine valley with the beautiful orchards and the strawberry fields and the bean fields. And now it's all hoop houses and plastic. I know that it's good for the farmers, but I also know that through the pesticides and this transition, a lot of us got sick. I know that a lot of our fathers suffered from being directly underneath these poisons and the sprayers. And, you know, we as kids used to chase the plane that was crop dusting. You know, my sister and I had a bedroom on the other side of the wall of the storage room that held poison. But, you know, you can't hold that against your parents because they didn't know. My father used food as medicine, though. He knew if he didn't feel good that he needed to eat more broccoli or he needed to eat fish. My father took care of us when we were sick. So it was always fresh fruits, vegetables, so much to the point where I kind of hated them after a while. But he would know that they would make you feel better. It just was something ingrained in him. It was something that I started studying it more. Back to Eden was a book that I kept really close to me after my father's heart attacks because he knew he needed a heart tonic. And he kept telling me about these berries. And I finally looked it up and it was hawthorn berries. And I ended up making them hawthorn berry tea, which was a heart tonifier. And then he would tell me about other things. So I would go to the herb room and pick them up. And it really started my passion for learning herbs and plants as medicine. Yeah, I've kept that pretty close to me throughout the rest of my life. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you a little story. My father, my, my father used to put the marijuana in the alcohol for his rheumatism, and he would actually make it for some of the judges in Santa Cruz County and really important people. This green stinky ointment. Now, I didn't know what it was growing up, but I went up in the attic one day and I found I found some pot. I went, oh my God, this must be my brother's. So I hid it so my father wouldn't find it. And then my father called up and he says, God damn it, Danette, your brother, your brother took my stuff. And I was like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. What stuff, Dad? And he says, I had a bag in the attic that's my marijuana I make my medicine from. I had to tell him, oh, I have it. Here it is, Dad. I make amazing pain salves now, and I have to attribute that to my father and, and teaching me that. It was something that they knew was good medicine. I've done a lot of studying about herbs. I mean, these weeds that we call weeds are really medicine, and I tend to them, and... My son, his wife is a herbalist, and he's very much followed the path my father did with food as medicine. My grandmother, too, she used a lot of herbs. My dad used to actually go help her put her garden in every year in Watsonville. We collect seeds, and my love of plants and farming 
has to come from my dad and my grandparents. But dirt is important to me. Dirt's very important to me. We asked Christina whether their project, Watsonville is in the Heart, is ultimately about the Monong generation or their descendants. The focus of the project is the memories of the descendants of the Monong generation. And I think focusing on the memories of the children of the Monongs for us is really important because a lot of the Monongs have passed away. And so the only record that we have of them now are the memories and the stories that the second generation have retained. And so memory work and the politics of memory is so important because it shows us what is remembered, why is it remembered, and what is lost. And those gaps in memory, I think, tell a larger story of the Filipino-American experience in the Pajaro Valley. This project is also personal for Christina. It's really deepened my connection to this place that I call home. And it's really invigorated me to be loud as a Filipino and to showcase these histories and say that Filipinos survived on this land for so long and we continue to do so. Growing up, I didn't realize that the history of Filipinos went as far back as it did. Connecting with the family members, that's what makes the project so important and so special to me. It feels really gratifying and I think shows the deep connections that we have between the university and the community. Community members participate in this project because they're also thinking about the future. They're hyper aware of the fact that these histories will not be recorded if they don't do it themselves. And so they're thinking about how can we continue on this history making so that their future generations can feel a sense of pride and belonging to the place that they're from or growing up in. I love my grandchildren to death. And all I want to do is encourage them that you're so worthy. You are authentically you, and you came from where you came from, and you can learn from your parents, you can learn from me, but you have that power to be who you are, be the best you can be, and when you don't want to be anything at all, take a break and come back to being authentically you and light that spark. My father was a little man, but he was the biggest man I ever knew. And he had the biggest heart and he was so generous. He had a sense of humor that was just, he was just a funny guy. All my three granddaughters have called me Every time they have to do a big report, they always choose the Philippines and they always want grandpa's story. I'm like, didn't your sister save that? No, grandma, tell us again. So, you know, his stories stayed in the family. I just really cherish the love that my father had for his family and, and for taking care of other people around him. I mean, if there was something to share, there was something to share. It was always that way. You didn't go to another home without something to share. If there was an abundance, you shared it. And I try to live my life that way still. And uh, 
yeah, it, it's really sad that, you know, my uncles had passed and I shed a lot of tears on the way home. Just remembering they were really good people. I'm really happy I live right here where I can drive through the memories and the fields and the dirt. what her interview really made me think about is how we connect to our origins or our roots or, or, you know, where we came from. And in her interview, this is multi-layered. You see this beautiful connection she had with her father and the ties between the generations. She talks about knowledge that gets passed down. And then you also see her connection to the actual land she grew up on like the dirt itself. And then when I was thinking about this, it's almost like there's another layer to this in choosing to record an oral history interview. Her past and her heritage and her family's story, the roots of that are in this oral history recording now for future generations to see. It made me just think about the different ways that we connect to where we came from and the ways that we feel it and preserve it. Hearing the story of a previous generation from the next generation, the image of dirt really resonated for me. It made me think of like, you know, what is home and what is my land? And especially because you get into things like who can own land and who can be on the land and who harvests the land and how land is passed down. And, you know, working with an oral history this time and really getting to see Antoinette's story, Skippy's story, but then a whole story of a bigger community, whether it's regional, like the Pajaro Valley, as well as the Manang community. What I really felt in this story was both how stories are passed down and then also how traditions are passed down. A special thanks to Antoinette Yvonne de Acampo Lechtenberg for sharing her story. And thanks to all of those involved in the Watsonvilles in the Heart Project. To learn more about this community archive and research initiative, and to hear Antoinette's full interview, please visit wiith.ucsc.edu. You're listening to Rework, which is a production of the UCLA Labor Center. This episode was produced in collaboration with the UC Santa Cruz team, Christina Eisenplank, Malaya Simon-Reynolds, Olivia Sawi, Kathleen Gutierrez, Steve McKay, and Leslie Ayala, Vina Hampapur, and Sabohid at the UCLA Labor Center. Original interview by Olivia Sawi. Sound design and editing by Vina Hampapur. Mixing by Aaron Dalton. Until next time, rethink, rework.
That's it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Even better if you like what you hear, and we hope you do. Please like it in the podcast app, pass it along, and leave a review. That really helps folks to find the show. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. That's a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Very special thanks this week to Rework, the podcast from the UCLA Labor Center. It's one of my favorites. Check out Soul Force, their two-part series on James Lawson Jr. You can find Rework wherever you listen to podcasts. Labor History Today is produced by the Kelmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes... Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening. Keep making history. And see you next time.